I don't know about you, but if you knew that God wanted to use you as his mouthpiece, wouldn't you want it to be a positive message? I know I certainly would, but sadly not for John. His message was repent. And somehow repent was not the message that some Jews expected to hear. Imagine waiting 400 years with no word from God. And Israel finally received a messenger from him who said, repent. Let me tell a little bit about John the Baptist. He was born to a barren, elderly couple, proclaiming life and a new miracle, not only for Elizabeth and Zechariah, but for the Jewish people. From the time John was in Elizabeth's womb, God's hand was with him, forming and guiding him. As he grew, John became strong in spirit. He had an important job to do. And from what we are told, it seems John stayed focused on it throughout his life. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He began preaching to the people. They had long, lived long as if in darkness. And now John came to testify to the light. His preaching must have been effective, for it stirred people. A people who was used to hearing a detailed set of laws they had to keep. The teachers sat entrenched in the temple and the synagogues, wearing flowing robes and boasting of their own righteousness. But not John. He preached in the desert, wearing the skin of a camel and eating insects and wild honey. He spoke of God's kingdom at hand and stressed repentance rather than laws. John differed from the scribes and Pharisees of his day in almost every respect. And yet he sought no prominent place for himself. Yes, he acquired a following over time, and even some disciples, but he quickly turned them towards the Messiah, the coming Messiah, claiming he must increase, but I must decrease. And remarkably, he did this with sincere joy. So what can we learn from this man of extremes? Hopefully none of us will ever carry a message like John's. The wearing of animal skins today would often signify either great and possibly inhumane wealth or insanity. A visit in the desert in many parts of the world would leave us solitary and unheard. While John's diet might leave us malnourished. Still, John's choices point us toward a way of life that we all must embrace if we are ever to point, as he did, to the Saviour, Jesus. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer has asked, if there is no element of ascetism in our lives, if we give free rein to the desires of the flesh, we should find it hard to train for the service of Christ. 
John gave up his life in a comfortable home, the conventional diet and clothing, and the accepted form of preaching of his day in order to announce the person of Jesus who would defy the expectations of the people. John sacrificed his own comfort and his image for the service of Christ. He eventually sacrificed his life. In one way or another, we too need to make sacrifices of our comfort and our image to serve Christ and the way he has created us to serve him. These offerings need not and should not consume us by being unbending legalism. But we can expect some discomfort as we seek to be faithful. We can, sure, we can be sure that as we carry on in God's call, a passion for him will increasingly be stronger than our dismay at what we have had to give up, if anything. Francis of Assisi wrote, Blessed is the servant who esteems himself no better when he is praised and exalted by people than when he is considered worthless, simple, and despicable. For what a man is before God, that he is, and nothing more. John's strength of spirit allowed him to see himself not through the eyes of people, but through the eyes of God. His strength of the Spirit also helped him to live not seeking position, but seeking service. May we practice self-sacrifice well, and appropriately as we train in Christ's service. And may God give us strength to do as he did to John the Baptist. But we see we can't leave the story there. John's message was twofold. Repent and prepare the way for the Lord. John was sent to prepare the way. He was a message, messenger alluded to in Isaiah's prophecy, the one who was sent to prepare Israel for Jesus, the Messiah. John's ministry and mission served to point to Christ, not himself. John was a prophetic voice that drew people out to the wilderness to hear his message. But the message pointed to another who was coming, Jesus. John the Baptist is an intense kind of person, thin and gangly, wild-haired and unwashed, or so as always depicted, living on a diet of locusts and honey, wearing rough animal skins as clothing, wandering the desert to commune with the Holy One, Yahweh, and proclaim in no uncertain terms the power, sweeping, irresistible onward march of the coming judgment of God. The word that the Gospel writers use to describe how John talks basically means to yell. It's like writing a text in capitals. Ooh. So he doesn't even turn the volume down. He shouts and yells at us across 2,000 years. He rants and rages about the axe at the foot of the tree and the winnowing fork and the unquenchable fire of judgment. 
He proclaims the dawning of a new age of history. He calls the religious people, the most holy people of that day and age, a hypocritical brood of vipers who are about to be cut down and cast into the fire. John practically leaps off the page at us in his ferocity. As one scholar has written, John the Baptist inaugurates God's kingdom like a champagne bottle shattered against the hull of a new ship. But for all this ferocity, the people flock to him. John was such a popular preacher that the crowds, including both the normal people as well as the religious groups like the Pharisees and scribes, came to hear him. In fact, one of the Roman historians of the day, Josephus Flavius, mentions the historical figure of John the Baptist and notes that he so excited and aroused the crowds of Jewish people in that area that King Herod had him beheaded. The Jews haven't had a prophet like this in generations. His charisma is irresistible. He's like a man on fire. The people come to him from all over Judea and later from all over Israel, dropping everything, leaving their homes and their hillsides and their sheep and their warm dinners to seek out this living prophet. What was John preaching? What made him so popular? You would think to a crowd tracks like that, crowds so thick and passionate, that the king actually thinks that you're starting an uprising. You would have to be preaching some pretty attractive message. But that's the curious thing. John wasn't preaching rainbows and sunshine and full bank accounts. He was preaching a gospel of repentance, baptism, and the remission of sins. He was calling the people to repentance and readiness. John made clear the coming of the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as the gospel of Matthew calls it. That coming of God depended on the people turning their hearts back to God. The Messiah was coming near, and to be ready, the people needed to turn their hearts and their lives back to God. And those who didn't turn, well, John made it clear, they weren't going to find themselves in a happy place. The people were ready for John's message, because they were ready, more than ready. They were ready for the coming of the Messiah. For centuries, the Jews had been living under one oppressive foreign government or another, waiting for their restoration, waiting for their homecoming. John can see in their eyes how long, how they long to believe that that hour has finally come in the Messiah. And when John promised that the Messiah was coming so close now, that you could practically see his kingdom on the horizon, then no wonder why people were lining up along the street to come and to listen. You know what? This year I finally get it. 
I feel too deep down in my bones. Some sense of longing and delayed, deferred, frustrated expectation that the Jews of the first century must have had. As I look around this year at the cultural and political developments here in England, Europe, and the rest of the world, and I see things that scare me, things that fill me with sadness. I won't bother to make a list of those things because I know that you too see the news and know what's going on. But this week I read and reread the words of Isaiah. It made me think this vision of being blessed, everlasting peace, feels a bit like a pipe dream, doesn't it? The promise of peace and end to all wars, small wars between colleagues or between husbands and wives, as well as big wars in places like Syria and the Ukraine. The promise of justice for the poor, the meek, and the end of rivalry, of smallness, of selfishness, of racism, the end of cancers eating away at our bodies, and depressions eating away at our souls, the end of closed borders and of refugees chased from their homes, the end of people dying in boats while other people turn their heads and backs. How long, Lord? How long? This morning, the voice of John the Baptist and the voice of the prophet Isaiah ring out to us, crystal clear, unchanged across 2,000 years of history. <coughs> clear as the ringing bell, sharp as the blade of an axe. People, get ready. That's us. John says, get ready for something bigger. For one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing, his winnowing fork in his hand. He's not kidding around this John the Baptist. But the reality of the kingdom always depends on readiness. And it does seem to me that this year, and in the years to come, God is going to need some kingdom people who are ready, who are with him, and who are willing to stand up for the poor, the weak, and the needy. People who are willing to say loud and clear, with their voices, with their lives, and with their ballot slips, that all lives matter. How will we get ready? How will we become the kind of people strong enough, bold enough to challenge the current political mood and stand up for open borders and open church doors? How will we ever get ready to be the kind of people that God needs us to be at this particular time? How will we prepare for the constant, constantly unexpected, always interrupting in breaking of God, our Messiah. John, with his no-nonsense gospel of repentance, forgiveness, and baptism, shows us the way. Yes, we too must repent. 
Turn our lives around. Turning that complete 180 degrees going in a completely different direction. But turning from the way that we are looking to a way completely new direction. A reorientation re of our whole life. Turning away from the world's refrain of accumulate, accumulate, accumulate towards the kingdom's refrain of give, give, give. Turning away from the world of me, me, me to the kingdom of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So first we must repent. And second, to confirm our forgiveness and our readiness. John calls us to return to our spirit of baptism. To submit our lives and ourselves once again to the consecration of death and new life. We call John the Baptist because basically he invented baptism. The Jews had always practiced ritual washings before holy days. But the act of being submerged, fully submerged, one time into water and then lifted up out again, down into death of self and up to the glorious life of Christ. That starts with John the Baptist. And of course, the most famous person that John baptized was Jesus. But as John himself says, his baptism was later replaced, or you could even say observed, by the baptism that Jesus himself offers us. When we were baptized, we stepped into Jesus' baptism, and so too, into Jesus' new life as ministers of the kingdom of heaven. John reminds us this morning that we are called to live our whole lives in the baptism of Jesus. In fact, Martin Luther once wrote, all of life is baptism. Let's face it, this broken world, we're consistently being submerged into darkness and chaos, into the stuff that causes despair. We go down. We feel the cold waters over our heads. We feel like this time, it just might be the end of it all. But then we feel those strong hands drawing us upwards into the light, and whoosh, we are raised up again into a glorious new life. This morning, John invites us to get ready for the coming of the Messiah and the thundering onward march of the kingdom of God. People, get ready. But first, we must repent to turn away from the world and all its tinsel and glitter. And it's me, me, me. Well, it's a simple, hard work of building the kingdom. And second, we must submit ourselves to the cleansing, healing, life-giving waters of baptism. 
freely and willingly going down with Christ into humility and darkness in order that we might be raised up again with him in glorious light. Brothers and sisters, we need to get ready. Are we ready? The kingdom of God is here. Thanks be to God. Amen.